0: Morning everyone, my name is Eddie, we're doing a second Bible reading, and it's from Luke chapter 5, 17 to 26. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on the mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat, threw the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teacher of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking this thing in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what has been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Eddie. Let me
1: also extend my congratulations to Russell and Lynn, 25 years, 1997. I, I think I was about two or something like that, two plus a few more years. But wasn't that a wonderful kids talk by Faye and that really sets our mind and hearts uh, prepared to hear this passage? So let's pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, you do search our hearts, you know our thoughts. Make them known to us that by your spirit we will respond appropriately and rightly in honour of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now what is our greatest need? A need of every single soul, of every single generation. And perhaps it's a need that the vast majority of people are not even aware of until it's too late. What do you think that need is? You may have heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He speaks of our uh, physiological needs, what we eat, what we drink, shelter. And it also speaks of our safety needs, our health, our security, or our social needs, friends, family, intimacy. But there's in fact a need of every single soul, of every single generation that goes far deeper than that. A need that food cannot satisfy, that water cannot quench, that no amount of money you throw at it cannot solve, that education cannot correct that surgery cannot remedy, that medication cannot relieve, that therapy cannot solve, that the government cannot fix. You see, there's a heart problem that goes to the depths of each one of us, a soul problem, and in our passage today, Jesus makes that known. He makes it clear, as obvious as it was to everyone there what the problem of this man was, Jesus showed a greater need. And so let's have a look at this passage. Now what we find here is a fascinating story. What we find here is what you call you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. And these friends, hearing that Jesus was in town, they said to a friend, we have to bring our friend to Jesus. We have to do something here. The healer is here. And so we read verses 18 to 19. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat. And tried to take him to the house to lay him before Jesus, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd. Now, even that last verse there, the last part of that verse, I find that quite insightful. They've brought their friend to Jesus, but the house was full. Now, now you, you would think those at the door, you know, perhaps it was just standing room at the door. You you would perhaps be thinking, Well, let's just make some room for this this paralyzed person, to come in. Let's just make some space. But you can just imagine what was happening. It was full. We're not going to lose our spot. We're just focusing on what's ahead, and you just find your own way. You know, turn a cold shoulder. I'm not losing my spot. But of course, we don't know what happened, but it's a bit telling, even that last part of that verse. But such is the human heart. And so what did the friends do? Well, we're not giving up. We've taken him so far, we're not taking him home. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. Verse 19, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Now, just picture what was happening at that point. They carried their friend up on the roof. And just like what we heard in the kids talk, the roof is not the pitch roof of today. There were flat roofs where you can walk up on the roof and it's served like an extra room, and there were stairs on the side of the house but even so you can sense the desperation of these friends we've taken them up on the roof but we're not giving up yet but now just try to picture what was happening inside the house they're hearing scratching on the roof and then dust falling down and suddenly you can see the sun rays come in and then a big gaping hole and then this person lowered through it desperate times call for desperate measures but how did Jesus respond? as the stretcher was passed down in front of him. I mean, talk about being distracted while preaching. I've been distracted many times while preaching because from this vantage point, you can see everything. You can just see. If you're falling asleep, I see. You know, I keep a record. But there was this one time I was preaching at a funeral. A lady's phone went off. And so she decides, I'm going to get through to a pews. I'm going to run outside to answer the phone call. And as she was trying to get through to a pews, bang, she fell over during a funeral. Everyone's head turned back that way. And they were also sympathetic. They're gasping. They thought she fainted. But I could see. She did not faint. She was just trying to answer her phone call. And so that was distracting. But the distraction Jesus Experience that day. Takes the cake. Talk about being distracted. And so what happened next? Well, I could imagine a few things that could have happened. Jesus could have said, hey, everyone, look, look at this friend of ours. Let's just make some room for him so that he can listen too. Or Jesus could have said, don't you all worry here. You'll all get your turn. You'll be here too. He'll be in line. Don't worry. Or Jesus could have just obviously said, which was obvious to everyone there, he's paralyzed. What he needs was his legs. Jesus could have said as simply as that, get up, walk, you can sit down, and you can listen to, it. and that would have made perfect sense, and the story would be over. But what did Jesus do instead? Desperate core, desperate need calls for divine compassion. You see, Jesus saw a far desperate, far more urgent, and a far more pressing need in verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And everyone there, those friends looking from the roof, the crowd, the paralytic, they must have been thinking, what are you on about, Jesus? Can you not see this man is paralyzed? He cannot walk, just, just heal him. What are you on about? But of course, Jesus was meeting a far deeper need that they were not aware of a far more urgent need and it wasn't to walk again it was to be forgiven just like what we heard in the kids talk but why why was that the greatest need of the paralyzed man why was that far more pressing than walking again well it's not because the physical body does not matter of course it does the Bible is very clear God made us physical beings with physical bodies in a physical universe. And heaven itself will be physical. We won't be spirits floating around in the clouds. And so it's not the case that physical health is unimportant or what we eat and drink is unimportant. Of course it is. I mean, Jesus laid on and fed the 5,000. He healed the leper last week. However, there is an underlying need of every single soul. That's just very easy to live through life and just overlook. It is the spiritual need. Spiritual need over the physical need. More than recovery of movement was reconciliation with God because it has to do not just with this life, but into eternity. Remember, there's, there's a heaven, but there's also a hell. And so it is the reconciliation with God that makes the difference. You're either eternally alienated from God or eternally embraced by God. And so the great need of this paralytic, more than you being able to walk and go home on your own two feet, was to be forgiven. You see, forgiveness is something we all need. We may not be aware of it, but we all need even on a human level. The late John Stott, he shared of what the head of a large English med- med- mental hospital said, in a mental hospital needing to deal with all sorts of patients, treats, treat all sorts of patients who all have a past, a guilt they cannot shake off, a stain on their heart they cannot get rid of or wash, and past events or actions or deeds that continue to torment them and condemn them. Well, this doctor said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. It is that deep need, that longing for peace, that I am okay, that the stain can be washed, that the sins can be forgiven. You see, what is needed is forgiveness, and only the forgiveness of God can remove that guilt, can wash that stain and silence that torment. And so in a sense, what Jesus was saying with these very first words to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. And so what Jesus was saying, you may not even realize it, my friend, but you have a far bigger problem than being able to walk. I mean, I could heal you, that's easy. But you'll remain alienated from God for all eternity. But you are forgiven. That is your deepest need, to be embraced by God, to be loved by God, Not just in this life, but into the next. And that, you see, is also our greatest need. It's a lesson, not just for them then, but for us today. Now, what should be interesting at this point as we come back to the story, what did Jesus see in them to show such compassion? Why did Jesus say, your sins are forgiven? What do you notice? It was on account of their faith, their plural, presumably the faith of the friends and the paralytic. You see, their faith was bold and courageous and risk-taking. You know, It's certainly not the type of faith where we say, let go and let God, and we'll just sit around and see what God will do. They acted on their faith. Their faith was in action, and it must have happened several times. You know, as they carried the friend, they could have thought, oh, let's just forget it, he's too heavy, let's just give up. Or when they got to the house and they saw that the house was all, well, let's just forget this, let's go home. But you see, their faith was in action. And when they got to the roof, they could have thought, well, let's just wait around until everyone goes and then we'll find Jesus afterwards. No, their faith was risk-taking. Their faith was displayed in action, and that was what Jesus saw. But here's the question. Was their faith that day that Jesus would forgive the sins of the paralytic? Did they come to Jesus expecting that? What do you think? I suspect what happened that day was that they simply came expecting that Jesus would heal and nothing more. And so, why is there that discrepancy between their faith and what Jesus did, their faith and how Jesus responded? Why did Jesus respond with more than what they asked for? You see, their faith was just down here. We just want healing, Jesus. But Jesus responded up here Your sins are forgiven. Why? Now, I found this fascinating to reflect on. I've preached on this passage in the past, but I only realized it this time. You see, Jesus can take the fickle, inarticulate, inadequate, must it cease size type of faith of the men of the friends you know not the high distinction type of faith but only the passing level type of faith only the childlike type of faith and take that and display his extravagant grace and mercy you only have a little bit of faith but I want to show you more i'm so ready to lavish on you my love because you see the heart of their faith Whatever they were hoping for, at the heart of it was a plea for mercy. Have mercy on us. And Jesus met that mercy in ways they could not even imagine. And if you think, that, think about that, that discrepancy between our faith and how Jesus responds is really the same for all Christians. When we first believe. You see, when we first believe, what was our faith like? Perhaps like a mustard seed. Perhaps just like a child, perhaps we believe that Jesus will forgive us because of his death and resurrection. Because back then, we believe, well, Jesus promised heaven and we'll get to heaven. That's perhaps the limit of our faith. However, how did Jesus respond? Beyond our wildest imagination. Not just redemption, but adoption into the family of God. Not just some blessings, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. You see, Jesus was more than ready to lavish on him and on us the blessings of heaven. And so desperate need calls for divine compassion. But then we read on. The leaders had a big problem with it. They didn't verbalize it, but Jesus was well aware of it. Verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, in their mind and in their theology, even the Messiah could not forgive sins because the forgiveness of sins was God's prerogative. To forgive sins is claiming to be God. And they were absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. And so to hear what Jesus said then, they would have been hitting the fans. Because, what right did Jesus have to forgive the sins of the paralytic? I mean, just you may have heard of the illustration. If Jack punched Joe and they're both crying, they're beating each other, up, but Jack punched Joe, and then I come in and I say, Settle, boys. And I say to Jack, I forgive your sins. Does that make sense? Joe will be saying to me, What right do you have? I'm the one who was hurt. I'm the one who was punched. You have no right to forgive sins on my behalf. And you see, that is right. You can only forgive sins if the crime, if the hurt, if the offence was against you. Towards the end of World War II, you may have heard of this story. There was a man, a Jewish man, by the name of Simon Wiesenthal. He was asked by a young, dying SS Nazi soldier to forgive him this soldier was about to die and he wanted that sense of peace and forgiveness so he asked this jewish man simon can you forgive me before i die because you see this soldier knew he did atrocious things while he lived he gunned down men women and children and he was haunted by that guilt by what he did and he wanted to hear the forgiveness of a jewish person before he died so he asked simon and since simon what did he do He listened in, but he gave no answer and he walked out of the room in silence. Now years later, Simon, haunted by that experience, he wrote this experience down in the book, The Sunflower. And he in a sense said, I have no right to forgive on behalf of the six million Jews who died. The crimes were perpetrated against those who are now dead, so no forgiveness can be given. You see, there's something right in what he said, isn't there? You can only forgive sins if the sin was against you, if the offence was against you. However, you see, from the Bible's perspective, what was missing in what he said was that the most offended party in all crimes, in all sins, in all offences, is God himself. All crimes, sins and offences ultimately against god it's a bit like uh, i try to understand this a bit like in miniature like my household if my kids were to fight which hardly happens of course not but if my kids were to fight beat up each other they're both crying they're hurt they're really hurt who's offended who needs to forgive well surely they have to forgive each other eventually if the gospel is to make a difference they have to repent, they have to forgive each other but who else was the offence against? well it's against me, their father because I set the rules in my household in our household you don't live this way you cannot behave that way it is not indifferent to me because I am hurt too when my kids fight but you see on a cosmic scale When creatures of the living God who owns us, who made us, when we make mistakes, when we sin, when we break the law, when we break whose law? It is his laws. And ultimately, all sins and crimes are ultimately against God. And so who can forgive sins but God alone? That is right. But you see what was shocking here. Jesus claims such authority. He said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And now finally, doubtful hearts met with divine demonstration. Jesus, in a sense here, ups the ante and he corners those Jewish leaders. Whatever you're thinking in your heart, you have to make the choice. Am I blaspheming or am I who I really say I am? You've got two options. And so verse 23, a bit like a riddle, he asked a question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And so what do you think? If you were there, you had to answer the question, what would you say? Which is easier? Well, if you think about it, both are impossible. Can you do either one of those? They're both impossible. No human can do any of those things. But if you were to make a choice, which is easier? Well, the hint is in the question. Which is easier to say? You see, from their perspective, from their standpoint, to say get up and walk is harder because you have to instantly show some tangible truth. You can't just say to a man, get up and walk and let's just wait around for 20 minutes and see what happens, or let's just wait a month and see what will happen after a month. Not at all. You expect instantaneous results, and so that will be harder. Whereas to say your sins are forgiven, there's nothing to show for you. You don't have to show anything tangible. And so what did Jesus do? You see, he's very clever. He was very clever, of course. He's the Son of God. Brilliant of him. What did he do? He did the harder thing to prove that he can also do the easier thing. And so verses 24 to 25. But that you may know that the Son of Man... Now, the title, the Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite self-designation. Not speaking about his humanity, really. It's speaking about him being that divine figure of Daniel 7 in our first reading, the one who's given all power and authority. And so Jesus said, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Doubtful hearts met with divine demonstration. And as simple as that, this man that day went home not only with his legs, but with his God. And so you can understand the response of all those there. Verse 26, everyone was amazed and gave praise. Praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, We have seen remarkable things today. And they did because what did they witness? They witnessed the Son of Man who can forgive sins. Not so much the miracle because the miracle just proves that he can forgive sins. And the man who was standing in front of us is the Son of Man who can forgive sins. And so that's the story. It is fascinating. But I wonder, and this is a question for us, I wonder if the same thing were to happen today, if a man comes and says, your sins are forgiven, he was a paralytic just like that, Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, would we be blown away just like they were? Will we also say we have seen a remarkable thing? Would our society take notice? What do you think? You see, Jesus has come to deal with our deepest, darkest, gravest, greatest need. Forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. But we can read this story and very easily think, well, that's for someone else, this forgiveness of sin business. It's very easy to think, well, that's not relevant to me. It's not for me. In fact, I've been trying to share the gospel with an older man who went to hospital recently, not a Christian. His father, his parents were. But he said to me, like, why don't you come come to church, visit us, hear what God has to say? I mean, you're, you're towards the end of your life. I mean, you've been in hospital and you've faced death. But he said, it's not for me. You see, I think part of the problem of our modern world is that we don't think we have the need for forgiveness. We don't think we need it. That's the world at large where we've lost the concept and vocabulary of sin and guilt. And so why do I need to be forgiven in the first place? But I even dare say it may even be true of Christians within the church because we don't see as much as we should see the depravity of our own sins. You see, there was a generation, the Puritans, They spoke of the sinfulness of sin. It is ugly, odious, vile, malignant. Not just the big ones, but the little ones. And I wonder whether we feel the same way. Because if we don't feel the same way about our smaller sins, we also feel, I don't need that forgiveness. And many sins are tolerated. In fact, what has shifted in society, if you think about it, there's this book by a psychiatrist. In 1973, Carl Menninger wrote, What Ever Became of Sin? and said, The very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous word, and a serious word. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared, the word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? You see, what what he was getting at was we live in a society where the sense of objective morality has gone out the window. It's all relative. I'm not sinning. I'm not guilty. You know, to accommodate modern sensibilities, we avoid any strong notion of sin and guilt. And so Jerry Bridges... In his excellent book, Respectable Sins, he's got this wonderful chapter which he titled The Disappearance of Sin, and he said, Strong biblical words for sin have been excised from our vocabulary. People no longer commit adultery. Instead, they have an affair. Corporate executives do not steal. They commit fraud. And so what has happened in society? We have softened the seriousness, the ugliness, the vileness of the sinfulness of sin. And so even when divorce happens, not just outside the church, but inside the church, we don't say it's the breaking of the covenant. But we say it's merely irreconcilable differences. You see, it's true of Christians too. For us to understand this passage, just like that paralytic, he came that day thinking, I'm going to get new legs. But Jesus showed his deeper need, a far darker problem of his heart and it may be true of christians too where it's very easy to be desensitized to guilt and sin even our own see jerry bridges in his book respectable sins he talks about the respectable sins that christians have become tolerant of and comfortable with sins like discontentment frustration pride selfishness, impatience, anger, worldliness. Now we say, well, that's not murder, that's not stealing, and so we tolerate it. But can we? It is not less sinful. And how many Christians would tolerate not just gossip, but be spreaders of it? But it's no less sin in the eyes of God. You see, I think this passage is to get us to reflect. We might come to church. We might think that we've come for different things. But Jesus exposes the heart of the paralytic. You've got a sin problem. And I wonder whether even for Christians, the small sins which we tolerate, it is a problem of the heart for which we need forgiveness. I mean, it's frightening when you read here like this in Leviticus, If a person sins and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though he does not know it, he is guilty and will be held responsible. And so we feel it, the guilt is there, the stain is there. In fact, it's there whether we feel it or not. It's why our greatest need, just like for the paralytic, is still the forgiveness of sins, because only God can wash the guilt, wash the stain. And silence the torment and condemnation. Only God can forgive. But that's not all. You see, the story did not stop there. In fact, there's more to the question that Jesus asked. You see, Jesus asked, which is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? You see, from their perspective, to say, get up and walk was harder. But in fact, it was the reverse for God. Think about it. What is harder for God to do? To forgive sins or to say to a paralyzed man, get up and walk? You see, to say get up and walk, piece of cake for God. Easy. He created the universe. Let there be light and there was light. Did not break a sweat at all. But for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, was far harder. You can't just say that and for that to happen. And there's far more than breaking sweat. In fact, it will involve bleeding. And you can just remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus, with sweats of blood, pleading to his Father, if it is possible, if there is a way, Father, take this cup away. You see, there's in fact nothing harder. There will never be anything harder and nothing harder for God to do than to forgive sins. Now you may have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great, great theologian. He put it this way. I say with reverence, he was the greatest problem God ever had faced or ever will face. There is nothing beyond this. The forgiveness of sins, I dare to say, taxed even the wisdom of God. See, there's no greater problem for God to have planned, for God to have done, for God to face the problem of the forgiveness of sins meant ordaining the death of his son, who died the dark death alone with the guilt of the world upon his shoulders so that in him he might bear the penalty for our sins. And so that from him, forgiveness can flow from the cross to solve our biggest need. See, in Hebrews 9, puts it so clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What's harder? To say your sins are forgiven. But what has God done? He has done just that, with the blood of his son. And so today, you know, our world is different. It changes all the time. Over the decades, it continues to change. And our world may not think much of sin and guilt anymore, but the problem is still there. Just like the paralytic may not realise, but the problem is still there. But the question this morning is to you. Have you had your deepest, greatest, gravest need met? Do you know of the sweet, liberating, joyful, peaceful forgiveness of Jesus Christ? because you can if you have yet to do that just like the friend might just be a muster seed type of faith but lord have mercy on me and jesus is more than ready to lavish his love to show his grace and mercy to lift the burden to cleanse your past maybe for some of you you have not done that maybe today is the day for you lord have mercy on me But for those of us who are Christians, we have to remember we don't just get forgiven once when we first believe. It is every day we come back to this. We remember the gospel and we remember it was not cheap. It was not easy for Jesus to forgive our sins. And so our hearts must be filled with thankfulness, knowing that his mercy is more, his grace abounds. And when our life comes in, you know that Nazi soldier, his life ended in such a tragic way, filled with guilt. He knew it. Dying without any peace. And he knew it. He did not get the answer he longed for. He yearned for. But we can be like another guy. You may have heard of the story of John Newton. On his deathbed, while his life was ebbing away, He said, My memory is nearly gone, but I just remember two things. Just two. That I am a great sinner, and Christ is my great Saviour. That's all we need to know. He has forgiven us. Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you have done the hardest thing possible to forgive our sins to deal with our problem that we might know of your loving embrace now and into all eternity and so we thank you lord that your spirit works to convict us in such a way and we pray that your spirit will work today in the hearts of all those here in such a way we pray in jesus name amen